The Hub is a community. Manuscript, book, and print cultures. Stamping problems. You are listening to a podcast by the Trinity Long Room Hub Arts and Humanities Research Institute. The Hub is a space. Celebrating tenure through the community. Created by Carl Sinclair. The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Trinity Long Room Hub online. My name is Eve Patton and I'm the director of The Hub. I'm very pleased to be hosting this special Behind the Headlines panel discussion in which we're going to ask the question, is there still an American dream? Uh, As you all know, we're in the last few days before the American election and as US citizens line up to vote, we want to think about what's on their minds as they go to the polls. Are they hoping for a renewal of those promises of equality, opportunity, freedom, or are they bereft and disillusioned at an American dream that seems to have turned sour? We can all see the afflictions that have been visited on our transatlantic neighbor. Uh, In the words of the novelist Annie Prue, the US is suffering what she calls a multiple barbed hook of unemployment, COVID-19 pandemic, oil drilling, naked racism, people at one another's throats. But are we seeing the whole picture? Are there hidden strands of positivity thriving in communities and cultures across the USA? A recent Bloomberg news item, for example, reported that the American dream was alive and well among Hispanic immigrant groups who are currently benefiting from increased income levels and social mobility. So what's the truth? Are we looking at a fantasy or a nightmare? At the Trinity Long Room Hub, we wanted to explore this topic, not only because Ireland and Europe have always, of course, been caught up in some version of the American dream narrative, but also because we wanted to understand something of the cultural and imaginative drivers of the current US election landscape. And we want to look at the concept of the American dream within the long view of history, not just the last four years. Uh, Those of you who are behind the headlines veterans know that these questions are very much in line with the mission of the Trinity Long Room Hub, which is Trinity's Research Institute for the Arts and Humanities. The Hub's research community works in and between disciplines, and these disciplines range from history and literature to film, to religion, to philosophy, to languages, and many more. And we want to engage these subjects to bring fresh and deep perspectives to the topics that are covered in the media. And that's why the Behind the Headlines conversations, which have been supported by the John Pollard Foundation for over five years now, are so important to us. And that's why I'm so pleased to see that we have such a large audience joining us this evening. Hello to those of you uh, joining us on Zoom. Uh, the rest of you on Facebook, of course, and also uh, those of you watching on Irish Central, our US media partner, you're all welcome. Please do participate. Our Twitter handle is at TLRHub, and uh, you can use the hashtag HubMatters, that's HubMatters, and we'll put those details in the chat as well. Uh, Also, after our four panelists have spoken for their allotted 10 minutes, we're going to be opening up the virtual floor for your comments and thoughts and questions. So do get these ready. You'll be able to use the Q&A function that's on the bottom of your screen, or if you're on Facebook, you can use the comments section 
please do mention your name. Uh, also, you might like to say where you're writing from. And we'll try and take as many of those questions as we can at the end of the discussion. But before that, uh, to business, let me introduce our four speakers. And I'll do this in the order that you're going to hear from them. Nicholas Johnson is an associate professor in drama in Trinity School of Creative Arts. Uh, Nick is a founding director of the Beckett Summer School at Trinity, which is, has been running for 10 years now. He's also a co-founder of our new Trinity Center for Beckett Studies, and he coordinates our creative arts practice theme in the Long Room Hub. Uh, Nick publishes uh, across several fields, but he's also been a media commentator on previous US elections. So that's why we're very grateful uh, that Nick can join us this evening. Our second speaker is uh, Larissa Hawkins. Larissa is a professor of political science and an activist. Uh, she teaches and researches at the University of Virginia, that's UVA, in the departments of uh, politics and also in the Department of Religious Studies. And Larissa is part of the UVA Democracy Initiatives Religion, Race and Democracy Lab. Uh, she has many publications and these include uh, Jesus and Justice, The Moral Framing of the Black Agenda, which was published in 2015. Uh, Larissa is no stranger, I should add, to controversy. You can find out a bit more about the firestorm that followed her expression of solidarity with Muslim women in the documentary film, Same God, which was made by Midget Productions in 2018. You're very welcome, Mauricio. Our third speaker is uh, Bernice Murphy. Bernice is Associate Professor at the School of English in Trinity, where she lectures in popular literature. And in fact, Bernice is one of the founding figures of our very popular, uh, popular literature courses, uh, a very successful uh, portfolio in the School of English. Bernice specializes in the study of place and space in American horror and Gothic narratives. And her books include The Rural Gothic in American Popular Culture from 2013. She's also an expert on the writings of Shirley Jackson. And she's currently finishing a book called California Gothic, which will be out next year. Thank you for joining us, Bernice. And our final speaker is Ed Pavlich. Ed is Distinguished Research Professor of English and African American Studies and Affiliated Faculty in Creative Writing at the University of Georgia at in Athens, Georgia State. Uh, a very widely published and he's the author of many books including Who Can Afford to Improvise? James Baldwin, Black Music, The Lyric and the Listeners from 2015. And I know that Ed's scholarship on Baldwin is one of the things that he's going to be drawing on, I hope, uh, in this evening's talk. Ed, thank you for joining us. So a warm welcome to all our speakers and I will now turn the floor over to our first speaker, Nick Johnson. Thank you so, thank you so much, Eve. Um, and welcome to everyone. Uh, wonderful to, uh, to see so many in the room. So uh, one of the main challenges that confronts us, I think, in even discussing or let alone answering the, the, the seemingly simple question that's been posed tonight, is there still an American dream, is how many different understandings of that dream there have been, the ambiguity of that term. So I thought I would start us off by offering some ways of framing how we might trace the heritage of this term 
in cultural and particularly with some reference to creative arts uh, to understand this uh, better. So the 1931 publication of The Epic of America by James Truslow Adams is generally credited with coining this phrase. And in fact, The American Dream was the original title of that work, which was rejected by the publisher. The phrase is pervasive throughout the book, which was billed as a one volume popular history of America. And it arrived at a moment of great challenge for the United States. Uh, in 1931, it was the early years of the Great Depression. And I would argue that this articulation of hope was one of the reasons for its success at that, at that period. Adams writes uh, lots of different definitions within the book, but one that I'll draw on particularly is, he says, the greatest contribution we have made to the thought and welfare of the world is, quote, that American dream of a better, richer, and happier life for all our citizens of every rank. And the issue of rank not being a barrier to success was particularly important to migrants who had left highly stratified societies behind in successive waves of voluntary emigration. Voluntary being a key word here. But the pressure on the adjectives in this phrase, better, richer, and happier, not to mention the noun citizen, reveals the fault lines that would unfold as this ideal progressed through the 20th century. So although the phrase was not in common usage until about 90 years ago, the concept of the dream as a call for equal freedom of opportunity to all, regardless of station, would have been one recognized by the founders. I think this might better be called the freedom dream as this was a radical idea at the time that in its unfolding through practice and through law over two centuries has in fact ultimately extended rights and benefits to many who were not included in the original concept of quote unquote man in 1776 and 1789 in those documents. So when Martin Luther King invokes the American dream by name in his uh, 1963 letter from a Birmingham jail, he calls upon quote, what is best in the American dream, which I believe is this imagined community, this as yet unreached, but still motivating goal of an America in which opportunity is genuinely universal. So often in competition with this freedom version or opportunity version of the dream, is the wealth version of the dream. And there are several versions of this too. So the first, um, which can be traced to uh, California, sometimes called the California dream, is associated with the situation on the frontier in the 1840s, where a person of low status in their country of birth could emigrate, travel, and if they could survive the landscape, the competition, and encounters in that space, they could become fabulously wealthy and powerful seemingly overnight. So in its representations in culture, this model of an American dream is fairly pervasive, this hope of striking it big, of striking gold. But this also is often um, seen through a critical lens. So most narratives that take this on in drama and film are ultimately tales of decline or tales of decline in happiness, or that this rise comes followed by a precipitous fall. And it's also notable um, how much violence was involved in that expansion physically that has been excluded from such narratives but is then resurrected uh, in, in, other, in other works uh, that, that tried to take that on. And I'm thinking in particular here um, of the work of Cormac McCarthy um, in, uh, in, in works like Blood Meridian. So another wealth dream, uh, especially popular in the 1950s and promoted actively by government policies in opposition to communism through the Cold War, is that American dream associated with consumerism and materialism. So the notion that if we can't have the frontier, we can at least have a great dishwasher. 
And it's worth noting that James Truslow Adams, when he died in 1949, was extremely disappointed, to say the least, that um, this phrase was being deployed in this limited way. And it's interesting that that same year, the year of his death, um, was the year that Arthur Miller uh, wrote Death of a Salesman, um, a work that we read this week in my American drama class and had a fantastic discussion about yesterday, which uh, prepped me very well for this. Um, highlighting the emptiness of that version of the dream, which is the main feature of that play's critique. And if we trace the plays that won the Pulitzer, you know, starting from uh, 31 to the present day, but, but in particular from, from uh, Miller forward, the relationship with the dream is not one where drama is propagandistically disseminating this ideal, but rather making it into a central problem, an axis uh, or a, a crucible, if you will, around which um, people have to engage and often which is pressing down on them. So this negative engagement with particularly the wealth dream suggests that something is more spiritual is at stake in, in this uh, aspirational dream uh, of, of, of the wider, considered in a, in a wider frame. So probably the most popular current articulation of the dream is that of generational economic comparison and its correlation with health outcomes. And this model looks at wealth gaps between rich and poor Americans, uh, or between Americans of different racial identities, or between men and women, and notes how many of the gaps have either persisted or widened massively since the 1970s. So this critique would note that life expectancy has declined in the United States over the last four years, um, almost uniquely among wealthy nations, and largely due to so-called um, diseases of despair. Um, these are suicide by gun, alcoholism, heroin, and prescription painkillers. So the shared ideological framework of a dream has not demonstrably led to a unified experience of opportunity, of acquisition, or growth in the 21st century. So millennials will, in aggregate, be poorer than the baby boomers who gave birth to them. But I think we make a major error if we judge or negotiate the survival of the dream purely on these economic grounds. So a generation might be poorer than the last in material terms, yet be happier. A generation might own less, but it also might come to need less. Instead of a violent relationship to America's land, the possession, uh, possession or extraction or domination of the past, an ecology of coexistence with that land could lead to healthier communities. So instead of making America great again, we might propose that we make America habitable in the future as an alternative slogan. So uh, decreased materialism might be a new imperative for collective survival. And that means the next generation might work hard, but out of a sense of community, shared sacrifice and urgency, or simply locally for family and for love, rather than for maximal individual gain. And in fact, I've begun to wonder about an inverse correlation between the dream conceived as eternal growth and the apparent despair in those communities where that promise has been most aggressively punctured or endlessly deferred. And here perhaps I begin to show my colors as a Beckett scholar and as an Irish dual national um, who's lived here now for 15 years when I say that excessive hope in the face of all evidence on this planet at this time with everything that is happening around us that we can see and know is absolutely not what this moment requires. So it is that dream, that particular lie of perpetual economic upward mobility that I personally would like to, would most like to see us awake from. In 2020, this year, the artist uh, Lizania Cruz uh, launched an online project called Obituaries for the American Dream, 1931 uh, to 2020. And in this project, uh, participants were asked to volunteer to submit images and stories about the moment that their American dream died. 
And she writes this in the artist statement. She says, the hope of this project is not only to grieve an ideal, but to reimagine the role of work, interdependency for community well-being, and government welfare in the creation of a new ideal. And I think this wording is emblematic of what I feel this moment does need, the supplanting of the notion of growth with the notion of sustainability. And this would valorize not dream, but reality, um, not sleep, but wakefulness to our circumstances as they are instead of a dream state. So I do believe that creativity and openness and grit that is required to rise to such a moment is indeed to be found in American history. And it is one of the refractions of light off this tattered brand. And where it is not to be found is in seeking to reverse the flow of time, to cover up the reality of these changes, to sell a version of America to itself or to the world that has no basis in fact. And we can see this uh, in the Trump administration policies on culture, where in uh, executive orders like Make America's Federal Buildings Beautiful Again, there is a restriction of aesthetic to a very limited definition uh, of neoclassicism, traditionalism, and anti-deconstruction, modernism, or brutalism. And the US government does not have good bedfellows in history in trying to turn back the clock. It's a notable contrast with China's approach to Olympic architecture, for example, but these have the benefit of clarity. They plant the temporal flag of the American dream firmly in the past. So the reality of the present is ultimately going to intervene. So the aspiration that those who insist on a singular American narrative, in my view, are actually betraying this central national ideal. The aspiration is aesthetically and culturally manifested through multiplicity and openness, not singularity nor closure. Thank you. Sorry, you're muted. I would like to dovetail um, on Nick's fabulous presentation, which um, nicely delineates um, in some ways how the American dream functions um, out of a sense of applying these theoretical um, lenses that he deploys beautifully and um, brings us to a point that I think I end at similarly, but come to from a different direction. Um, one of the things that I think is most important to, um, to think about when we, when we utilize this notion um, of the American dream is to call it what it is, um, a mythos. And this mythos is also hegemonic. Um, so thinking about the ways that the American dream serves both as um, a way to perpetuate the, the hope, the kind of unfettered hope that Nick just referenced, um, but also serves to, um, at the same time it's offering hope, uh, to placate the masses in, in the Marxian um, sense that we um, talk about is important. And so in my studies of race, religion, democracy, and politics, one of the most important um, courses I've ever taught is called Race and the Politics of Welfare. So um, I'm, I'm kind of taking a tack in that direction and utilizing critical race theory as a way of coming to this question. Um, so the American dream in, in the US context and, and at the level um, of the grassroots of citizens is ubiquitous. Um, it's difficult to remember the first time um, one hears the phrase, right? It's, it's that um, woven into the fabric of our culture. 
Um, of course, the American dream mythos undergirds American exceptionalism, um, the city on a hill, um, the notion of American Israel. And a lot of the ways that the American dream is perpetuated is through reference to sacred documents, like the Declaration of Independence, um, this notion of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Um, and then the, the Federalist Papers then serving as a reminder um, of what was instantiated in the Constitution, which was um, a kind of economic and even political conservatism, the notion that the greatest source of faction actually is the unequal distribution of property. Um, and American observers of the um, United States from um, kind of time immemorial, um, from de Tocqueville to Gunnar Myrdal to um, ec economics um, specialists like Hartz and political philosophers um, point to various themes. Um, Myrdal points to the notion of an American dilemma, the dilemma of race. Um, and the, the unfettered optimism that um, the United States was an inexorable um, beacon of human rights and that consequently this American dilemma of race would be solved by those same creeds that birthed um, this notion of the dream. Malcolm X referred to the American dream um, as a nightmare. Um, his famed speech, The Ballad or the Bullet, Give Me Liberty or Give Me Death, actually questions the extent to which um, Black Americans even count as citizens relative to those same mechanisms um, that observers like de Tocqueville and Myrtle point to um, as salvific of the American soul. Um, so for many, the American dream is a pipe dream, um, especially when we look at how racial um, capitalism works, the perpetuation of capitalism on the back of, of Black enslaved Americans, um, that this then goes, goes um, on to undergird the ways that we continue to think about the American dream in the US today. Um, Jennifer Hochschild, a sociologist from Princeton University, um, in a book from the mid 90s, talks about the facets, the tenets of the American dream and um, how they're all false. So the four are, number one, everyone can participate equally and can start over. Number two, um, Americans have a reasonable anticipation of success. Number three, success re results from actions and traits that are under one's own control. And then number four, success implies virtue. What I think is important to know is the obverse of each of these um, in American history. The notion that everyone can participate equally and start over in the United States. Um, that notion is marred by the history of chattel slavery, um, the extermination of indigenous peoples, and the notion that women still um, lack comparable worth compared to men, and on and on. The reasonable anticipation of success, again, refer to uh, the previous analysis, this notion that success results from actions and traits under one's own control. Um, and so does it follow then that failure flows from a lack of volition? Um, failure then is a sin in this view. And the notion that success implies virtue 
brings us um, you know, full circle to Max Weber's um, The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. This notion um, in the United States that prosperity itself results from values like hard work, virtue, and the success and the evidence in, in Weber's um, critique of US capitalism is this notion that uh, success per the dream is evidence of one's salvation. So the American dream um, in this sense is very closely linked to notions of religion, the kind of undergirding um, kind of American Judeo-Christian ethic, if you will. So in my race in Obama, um, excuse me, my race in welfare politics class, one of the things I do is ask students to talk about the key dimensions of the American dream from their perspective. So this is before I introduced them to Hochschild's um, study, which was also predicated on asking similar questions. Um, surveys and also interviews um, are what Hochschild employed. And in particular, one summer, um, two summers, I should say, I taught a course to um, underprivileged high school students, um, all first-generation college students of color or um, immigrants, um, in some cases undocumented. And I asked these students the same question that I asked my college students um, at an elite liberal arts university. What are the key dimensions of the American dream? And their answers um, were important, um, similar, but different than the ones we normally hear. A complete family, a good job, freedom, equality, loving support, good education, live comfortably, hardworking, suburbs, justice, good neighborhood, perfect mate, big house, pursuit of happiness, success, car of the year, providing for family without help, respect. I asked them what their experience of the American dream was. Racial segregation, bad educational system, hard work, freedom, respect, discrimination, being a minority, coming from another country and succeeding, good jobs, no wealth, no justice. So one of the um, things that then um, inspired me in teaching um, toward this notion of the American dream from that point on was um, trying to um, relate to students in what is the meritocracy in the United States, um, higher education, the ways that education played into continuing the mythos, the mythos, excuse me, but also often stripped from the mythos any notions of um, race, um, religion, and gender as really key to who succeeds and who fails. Um, in fact, framing the American dream as, um, in a large sense, a race to the bottom. So today, for instance, is um, Latina Equal Pay Day in the United States. Um, during the time of COVID, Black and Latina women are being forced out of the labor market at two times the rate of white women. Um, that's where COVID relief should be directed um, in, in any sense. Um, also, CEO compensation in the U.S. has grown 940% since 1978, around the time of the oil crisis, while typical worker compensation has risen only 12% during that time. Um, so this is 
income inequality, this isn't even talking about um, economic mobility that Nick was um, referring to. And so one of the most important things um, about this mythos of the American dream involves um, notions of individualism and economic bootstrapping, um, centering the individual, um, centering then a notion of citizenship as well. Um, and one of the most important things that I find in teaching students is um, the ways that in the United States, citizenship is always defined modally um, as whiteness. Um, the American dream is personified um, as whiteness. Um, American as apple pie um, implies blue eyes and baseball. Um, those things that, that are part and parcel of the conceptualization of citizenship in the American dream in the United States are intricately linked to notions that are grounded in racialization, infantilization, and dehumanization of um, people of color, whether it's migrant labor in the US um, that um, often fuels wage theft, whether it's the notion that the New Deal itself, um, the Social Security Act was predicated on excluding um, black and brown workers, namely um, domestics and those who were migrant laborers in the fields. Um, so this has various resonances for public policy as well as politics, this notion of and mythos of the American dream as it continues to be perpetuated in the United States. Um, there is studies about economic mobility, which I think are important to include in our conversation as well. Um, while in the US, everyone, um, I, I think you all know this in Ireland, no one talks about class here. Um, which is interesting. Um, and when we do talk about class, everyone says they're middle class, right? So if you've paid attention to the American um, campaigns happening, presidential campaign, as it's been happening back to the primaries, these appeals to the middle class um, are, again, ubiquitous because Amer every American says we're middle class. Um, actual mobility in the United States is only um, one and 12 um, citizens. And so mobility is counted as moving from um, the, the income quintiles, from the bottom 20% to even a rank above. Only one in 12 um, in the United States exceed their economic rank. Part of the, Amer the, the mythos of the American dream is that one does better than their parents. Um, and what we find is that this mythos just does not um, play out. The last thing I want to cover is the way that the American dream has been um, focused upon in this recent election. Um, there's a book called Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right. Um, there's another book of a similar ilk um, that is autobiographical. It's called, um, this book itself is um, out of the Academy. The other book is called Hillbilly Elegy, which is being made into a movie. Um, but the great paradox um, in the United States um, that is displayed in this book, Strangers in Their Own Land, which is primarily about white, cultural, religious conservatives in the bayou of Louisiana, is that their notion of the American dream is tied deeply to a notion of white desert, white entitlement, that what is being lost in America right now 
is their position in the imaginary line, um, the imaginary American dream line, the notion that black and brown people of um, whatever gender are getting ahead of them in line. These people who don't deserve by virtue of their black laziness, um, that they didn't presumably work as hard, um, don't deserve to be ahead in line. White men deserve to be ahead in line. And so this fear of white replacement um, is not just a mantra of white nationalists who descend on the city that I live in. Um, the fear of white replacement is shared by the white middle class. And along with that fear is um, an inaccurate view of race in the United States and how race operates. It's the notion that citizenship, that Blacks are actually, um, that Black Americans are subpar citizens. I like to say failed citizens in the, in the notion that um, we have categories in the U U.S. State Department for failed states. Um, African Americans are viewed in the American um, tradition as failed citizens and treated that way per, um, per um, many cultural um, and religious groups. Um, and so they need to be saved and resurrected in order to be adequate to pursue the American dream. Um, and I'm at time. The last thing I will mention is um, FDR's second Bill of Rights um, flows out of the Great Depression and is very related to what we are seeing now. And I think that is predicated on correct a corrective of the notion of the American dream at a time of um, economic decline, and one that I hope that we'll get to discuss in the aftermath. Thank you. Hi. Uh, hi, everybody. Um, so to start, I'm going to briefly refer to the 1984 horror film Poltergeist, but don't worry, it is going somewhere. Um, <laughs> I'm not just going to tell you the plot of Poltergeist for no reason. Um, it's about a white middle class family named the Freelings who live in an idyllic Californian suburb. The sun always shines and their children seem happy. They even have a golden retriever, which is, of course, the most American of dogs. Father Steve has sold more homes in the community than anybody else, and Mother Diane appears content to work in the home. Life is good. But shortly after the bulldozers move into the backyard to dig a new swimming pool, a series of terrifying supernatural incidents begins. During a meeting with his boss, realtor Mr. Teague, Steve, uh, the father of the family, realizes why their home has been targeted. Their suburb was, of course, if you've seen the film, you'll know this, it was built over a graveyard. Instead of paying for the bodies to be reburied, Mr. Teague only moved the headstones. In the final moments of the film, their brand new swimming pool is flooded with corpses, the corpses of the vengeful dead, and all hell breaks loose. Now I'm mentioning Poltergeist here, not just because I think Mr. Teague is a vaguely Donald Trump style uh, figure. You could definitely imagine him not moving the headstones. Uh, but because the film vividly captures the ways in which the concept of the American dream has been unpacked within a certain kind of horror and, uh, and gothic narrative. In these kinds of stories, there really is almost always a corpse bobbing up and down in the metaphorical national swimming pool. And the American dream of domestic stability and material comfort is inevitably and violently disrupted. And as our previous um, speakers have highlighted very well, it's only relatively recently that the story of America has begun to acknowledge the perspectives of those whose experiences of it have been anything but utopian. As Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz has put it, to say that the United States is a colonialist settler state 
is not to make an accusation, but rather to face historical reality. For early European colonists such as the Puritans, North America was a kind of metaphorical blank slate upon which they could project their deepest longings and fears. From their perspective, European colonization and expansion was of course an entirely positive historical event, bringing new life to a virtually barren territory, you get all those kinds of metaphors. Now this was of course blatantly untrue, but it provided justification for their aggressive commercial, imperial and theological ambitions. But from the earliest days in the development of an independent American literary culture, there emerged a much darker national narrative. And this is the one I kind of spend all my time researching. It was one which amongst other things acknowledged that the land which had supposedly been promised to white settlers by God himself, because God is, God is of course a man in this uh, analogy, was not quite as empty as they had hoped. And this anxiety is actually really effectively depicted in writer-director Robert Eggers' 2015 horror film, The Witch, a New England folktale, watch it for Halloween, it's great, which presents us with a Puritan, a sort of mind's eye perspective of 17th century folklore and colonization. So the self-aggrandizing myth of American exceptionalism has also been undermined by the start, as our previous speakers have also indicated, by the fact that the establishment of the United States is of course inextricably linked to both genocide and slavery. But notably, the kind of pioneer rhetoric that was often deployed to celebrate the nation's westward expansion during the 19th century was repurposed during the 1950s. And here I'm going to intersect a wee bit with Nick, when a particularly powerful new version of the dream was established in the aftermath of World War II. Between the late 40s and the mid 60s, an unprecedented number of new suburban communities were established, built to accommodate millions of young families. Yet from the moment that these uh, first housing developments began to spread across the US, the suburbs were established as another decidedly dualistic state for American writers and cultural commentators. On the one hand, they were kind of seen as this utopian milieu for you know, the American everyman, the man in the gray flannel suit and his ever expanding family. But at the same time, there existed a darker parallel narrative, which again evoked those which have always shadowed the American faith in forward momentum, technological progress, and apparent rational enlightenment. Here in these darker narratives, suburbia was depicted as a mind-numbing breeding ground for discontent and conventionality. For writers such as Shirley Jackson and Sylvia Plath, the reimposition of conservative gender ideals fueled writings in which the nuclear family was a site of anxiety and entrapment. Novels such as Ira Levin's 1972 classic, The Stepford Wives, would later dramatize similar themes. This was a version of the American dream, which also excluded those who were not white or the right kind of white, upwardly mobile, heterosexual and family orientated. Yet it is to this hyper idealized version of America to which Republican politicians in particular, since Reagan, have repeatedly returned to as a kind of utopian lost ideal. When the cleverly vague campaign slogan, Make America Great Again, is deployed, it is this essentially exclusionary version of the nation which is being evoked. So the horror and gothic genres have of late been experiencing a real boom in quality and popular um, vis visibility. And yet again, some of the most notable of these narratives have presented us with bleak but compelling visions of the contemporary American nightmare. So I'm going to finish up by very quickly discussing the films of writer-director Jordan Peele, which I think have been particularly effective in this regard. 
His 2017 hit, Get Out, which is just a brilliant title for a horror film to start with, uh, revolves around a conspiracy perpetrated by a secret society of white baby boomers who hijacked the bodies of African-Americans in order to extend their own lifespans. It's a film which, amongst other things, reminds the viewer that as Tanahisi Coates has written of the African-American relationship with national history, never forget that we were enslaved in this country longer than we have been free. In Get Out, the chains which bind the film's victims are surgical rather than made of iron, but the film's obvious historical analogy reminds us that the brutal and dehumanizing manner in which the white villains treat their African-American uh, captives is of course no outlier within American history. Peel has also noted interestingly enough that Get Out is much influenced by Ira Levin's The Stepford Wives, except race rather than gender is the main locus of anxiety here. Now Get Out was followed by Peel's 2019 horror fantasy Us, in which the foundations of the American dream are again comprehensively challenged. The protagonists here are the Wilsons, an African-American family of four, who were suddenly confronted one night by a physically identical quartet of feral doppelgangers who've been living underground this whole time. What begins as a tense variation upon the supernatural home invasion movie becomes a satirical parable about the very nature of America itself, as has been telegraphed all along by the film's title, Us and the US. Now, crucially, the ordeal being undergone by the Wilson family is not an isolated incident. I apologize if you haven't seen it. I've just completely spoiled it for you. It's still great though. Everyone seems to have their own underground dwelling doppelganger and they've all come above ground to slaughter their duplicates and take over their lives in the sun. The impact made by the sudden revolt of the previously invisible shadow population is intensified by the fact that Red, their leader, is the double of Adelaide, the mother of the Wilson family. And Red, as we find out for reasons I won't go into, has very good reason to feel resentful towards her above ground uh, double who she feels has stolen her life. So finally, the film closes with a truly audacious, kind of brilliant closing sequence in which the doppelgangers join hands in their hundreds of thousands and millions and appear to stretch across the very continent itself from sea to shining sea. In Peel's horror films then, as in much of the American horror and gothic tradition more generally, it is again made clear that if there is still an American dream, it is an inherently problematic concept, one that has often been rooted in white supremacy, gender and economic inequality, and profound historical injustice. Thank you. All right, can you all hear me? Thank you. Um, great, to, great to be here and great to hear everybody. Um, so the first image that appeared in my mind when I was asked to talk about the American dream was from Michael Ondaatje's 1987 novel, In the Skin of a Lion. The novel is set in Toronto and touches on communities of immigrants to the new world. In the novel, it's called Upper America. They're from the Balkans, Serbs and Chetniks, Greeks and Macedonians. My grandfather, Ivan Pavlich, might have well have been one of them. He was born in a region called Gorski Kotar, near the Adriatic Sea, in what in the early 1990s would come to be known as Croatia. After having lived and worked in Chicago from the age of 12, in his early 30s, he'd be refused re-entry into the United States 
due to 1924 immigration restrictions upon, among others, people from Eastern and Southern Europe. An iron worker, Ivan Pavlich settled in Trail, British Columbia, a small town with a massive smelter operating on the banks of the Columbia River. Born in 1930, my father, a bricklayer, found his way back to Chicago in 1955 and into the steel mills. On the train and on his way back to the south side of Chicago, as it turned out coming from ballroom dance classes, he met my mother, who was then a high school student at South Shore High on the south side in South Shore. To her parents' horror, they'd start a family, my family. How Ivan Pavlich's grandson becomes poet and novelist, a professor of African-American studies, and a scholar of African-American literature and the life and work of James Baldwin is a story we don't have time for. It's a story I'm not sure I could tell even if we did have time. I'm not sure the language for that story exists. Maybe we've been too busy dreaming. In any case, I keep pieces of Andaches in the skin of a lion in my memory verbatim. In one moment, bands of copiously non-Anglo immigrant workers, one of whom, Nicholas Temelkoff, is learning English by closely studying Fats Waller records, are building a huge bridge, the Bloor Street Viaduct in Toronto. This is the 1930s. Temelkoff later becomes a successful baker. Andachi explains that because he'd learned his English from Fats Waller, Temelkoff's emphasis on usually unnoticed syllables and the throwaway lines made him seem high-strung or dangerously antisocial or too loving. As for the rest, Ondaatje's gloss of the scene frames a story like this. Is this the American dream? Ondaatje wrote, in certain weather, when the fog fills the valley, the men stay close to each other. They arrive for work and walk onto a path that disappears into whiteness. What country exists on the other side? They move in groups of three or four, many, have already died in the building of the bridge. But on mornings like this, there is a prehistoric fear, a giant bird lifting one of the men into the air. In James Baldwin's 1968 novel, Tell Me Out on the Train's Been Gone, we pick up the trail of workers such as these. Baldwin's narrator and protagonist, Leo Proudhammer, a black and queer actor, and three white colleagues go for pizza in a small town in New Jersey during World War II. Of the proprietors of the pizzeria, Proudhammer relates, the people who ran this joint weren't natives of the town, thank God. In fact, they weren't natives of the country. They came from Sicily, I think. They hadn't been in America long and they were beginning to be gravely confused. They, the old mother and father, the sons and daughters and in-laws, still considered in their barbaric possessive and affectionate fashion, that they were responsible for each other, that what happened to one happened to all. This showed in their manner with each other, and this manner marked them as foreign. Turns out that the pizza joint, as Proud Hammer informs, was the only place in town where Negroes sometimes ate and drank, or rather it was the only place in town where Negroes and whites ate together, Baldwin's using Negro in, you know, in, in the historically accurate uh, sense of the word. Proudhammer observes, 
that the middle-class townspeople take their pizza to go. It's the laborers, black and white, who eat in the restaurant and at times eat together. Dimly, it begins to occur to the Sicilian owners that there's something wrong, a stigma, but whose? Krauthammer relates, it began to occur to the women that there might be something wrong with being a laborer, since it meant, apparently, they were indeed confused, that one had to be friends with Negroes. They had seen where the Negroes lived by now and how they lived, but they had yet to ascend high enough in the American scale to become reconciled to the American confusion. They had not yet learned to despise Negroes because they were still bemused by life. So it is that the path that disappears into whiteness faced by Andache's swarthy troop of workers encounters what Baldwin calls the American confusion about one's relationship to work, to experience, to life, and surprise, to black people. It doesn't take too long, not much longer than a generation, for those swarthy immigrants to, as Baldwin puts it, ascend high enough in the American scale and into the American bewilderment, into the dream, as it were. According to Baldwin, the consequences of that ascent leads to a distrust of work and life of public spaces such as schools and a fear that often works itself out via racist attitudes about multi-tone array of people, especially black people. By 1969, in a New York Times op-ed as measure of what we're calling the American dream, Baldwin figured the political weight of Richard Nixon's silent center, or as we came to understand the phrase, silent majority, thusly, Baldwin wrote, I will state flatly that the bulk of this country's white population impresses me as being beyond any conceivable hope of moral rehabilitation. They have been white, if I may so put it, too long. They have been married to the lie of white supremacy too long. The effect on their personalities, their lives, their grasp of reality has been as devastating as the lava which so, which has been as devastating as the lava which so memorably immobilized the citizens of Pompeii. They are unable to conceive that their version of reality is an insult to my history and a parody of theirs. If they think that things are more important than people, and they do, well, let them think so. Let them be destroyed by their things. In 1976, on a conference panel with Toni Morrison, Baldwin came back to check on the laborers and labor's progress with the American dream. He wrote, when I was young, I like many others battled on the side of labor unions and would never have dreamed of crossing a picket line. The hunted union organizer of that hour has evolved into a fat, racist, neo-fascist bureaucrat and the grateful rank and file workers are defending their rights against all comers, especially the niggers, and slobbering into their television sets a vivid illustration of human desire. Finally, speaking with Mel Watkins for the New York Times Book Review in 1979 about his, his final novel, titled Just Above My Head, and the fact that there were no meaningful white characters in this book, Baldwin comments upon what happened to the people whose, quote, as Andache put it, a path disappeared into whiteness. And Baldwin told Watkins, I think the concept of race has had its day. Ultimately, to be white is a moral choice. It's obviously a very deliberate challenge to people who think they're white 
to re-examine all their values, to put themselves in our place, to share in our danger. In any case, the characters in the novel realize that white people are irrelevant to their lives, not because they're white, but because of the choices they've made. At the very bottom, it's now the choices we make, Baldwin said. We no longer depend on the choices they make. Even they can't depend on the choices they make. They must get back in touch with reality. They can't avoid it if they want to live. In the interest of time, we can say that we found in 2016 that 60 million people, the vast majority of whom still insist on thinking that they're white, to speak just of these, voted in ways that indicate they indeed insist upon dreaming about the moral choices of whiteness. What all this means, what does all this mean for the American dream? I don't know. I know in the skin of a lion, by, as Ondache put it, not attaching himself to a falling structure, Nicholas Temelkoff made it off of that bridge with skill and daring and in part with a version of English he learned from Faswaller. So maybe it's best for Ivan Pavlich's grandson to address the American dream in a version of English I learned in the 1980s from a rapper named Rakim. How did he put it? Released six months after Baldwin's death in 1988 song titled To the Listeners, Rakim said, I ain't cheap, don't sell me a dream, I don't sleep. It's a good start. And maybe to conclude a talk of dreaming, maybe we need an image of waking. Is that possible? I think we have to believe it is. Not so much offering a method for waking as much as a state of preparedness and openness. Back and tell me how long the train's been gone. Leo Proudhammer confesses and Baldwin writes, I don't know anything about how we are put together. How long, in what secrecy, a moment prepares itself. Or according to what law it suddenly comes to light so that one is standing abruptly, trembling, face to face with the unimaginable. And I don't know that either. But when I read those lines, something, a sense of possible connection, of responsibility comes awake that I sense American dreamers, and by no means all of them Trumpers, and by no means all of them families with origins in Europe, guard against and avoid at all costs. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Ed, for such a moving and eloquent presentation. Uh, and, and thanks to all the speakers. I know that uh, you've covered a lot of ground. We've got lots of questions coming in um, and uh, I, I'll try to get to as many as possible. Um, and, and see if we can uh, amplify and, and flesh out some of the, the material that you've all covered. Um, but I'm going to pick up first really from, from something that Ed was uh, touching on in his brilliant reading of, of Andachi's novel. And it's the theme of work itself, because I think this is something that a number of you have touched on. And, and the use of particular kinds of work really to define the roles of Americans and, hire, and put them into a hierarchy within the narrative of the American dream. A question has come in related to this from Orla Darling from Dublin. And Orla is, is uh, directing the question to you, Nick, but uh, other people may jump in. Um, and she asks, uh, she's interested in your idea that present and future generations might work out different motivations from that of material gain. 
Um, but she's concerned that what we're already seeing in terms of different motivations is a culture which is abusive in a way because it relies on interns, unpaid work experiences, that there is a millennial generation uh, coming into maturity that in fact isn't going to know the same kind of paid work and the value of that and is therefore I suppose disenfranchised from the kind of uh, American dream that you might have been looking to and I know other people might want to address this topic of work but Nick I wonder could I ask you first about that? Sure. Yeah, no, it's, it's a great point, and it's definitely um, something that happens. It's something that is happening, is that this substitution of experience um, in exchange for that is actually enriching another generation. And, uh, and, and I think what's important to clarify is that I'm speaking there more about, let's not assume that everyone has the same motivation to arrive at a very narrow definition of a mid-century dream that has to do with home ownership or a particular family configuration or the kind of norms that have been, um, I think, somewhat unproblematically sort of carried forward in the discourse around the dream. So we, that isn't necessarily the definition of everyone's happiness. Someone's happiness might be the way they express that freedom might not be through a house in the suburbs, but rather through the ability to have a cheap apartment and travel or to move out of the country and live in a place they can work remotely or to do that. I'm not implying here that we should completely renegotiate um, the fact that you still need money to live in the world. I'm, I'm, it's, it's, that, that, that's a material issue. The issue that I think is, is the one to highlight is what is our motivation or our aspiration and that the, the achievement of, of those motivations might be taking place on other terrain than possession or wealth. That just because one generation is poorer than the last doesn't necessarily mean that their life is worse. It doesn't correlate directly to happiness. And that idea is, is ingrained in, it, it, we, would, we would give too much power to, to money to say that that is the sole source of that happiness. It could come from other places. I'm not saying it can be avoided or disappeared or that it doesn't matter in America, but that articles that claim to you know, put a price on the American dream, like what's a house, what's a car, what's a vacation, what's a TV uh, cable subscription, it seem ridiculous to me because I don't want half of those things, you know, myself. So as a millennial who will earn less over my life, you know, I would predict probably than um, my lovely parents who are watching from El Paso, you know, it's to, it's to say, um, it's, it's, to, it's to say that, that I, I'm not looking for the, a replication of that life. I'm not looking for exactly those same values. I couldn't afford that same size of house if I were buying a house in Dublin, but that's not a problem. I have a flexible uh, basis on which I'm, I'm trying to negotiate my way in the world that isn't just about those values. And that's what I'm trying to be inclusive of, is people may want something other than um, the material gain or the material experience. There are other motivators that are still valid. Thanks, Nick, and I can understand that. And obviously, you know, the, the link of the American dream to a kind of Fordist vision of work and the workplace is something that we do have to move on from. But perhaps there's also a question that's attendant on this, and it's about, about where we find the grounds for leadership in a, a new version of uh, American dreaming. And a question has come in from Marcus de la Poire Beresford. Marcus, you're telling us you're a Trinity alumni. It's a, a very welcome question that you put to us. Um, if one accepts that the American dream should abandon the culture of materialism, where is leadership likely to come from? or reform or uh, rejuvenation. And Marcus goes through a number of possibilities. Do we look to education? 
Do we look to religion, which is a subject I want to come back to? Do we look to government? But of course, so much of a, an American form of leadership is linked to economic values that have been enshrined uh, by the narratives we've been talking about. I'll, I'll maybe ask you to comment first, Nick, and then I might come to you, Larissa, on this question of where we look to for leaders if we're trying to restore a, a dream uh, that will work better. Nick, any thoughts on that? Yes, I mean, I, I guess what's interesting is the discourse in economics that's looking at UBI, looking at universal basic income, um, and the suggestion that the material circumstances might be able to be sorted out in a wealthy society that has a large resource base that you might be able to just sort a kind of minimal subsistence and clear uh, what you described there as the Fordist notion that we have to be on an assembly line, it has to happen nine to five. Already, you know, COVID has been fascinating for the way it's disrupted that assumption. People are living in completely new, uh, even non-urban, you know, situations. We could be looking at an American rural renewal just coming out of the fact that people don't have to be in an office from nine to five. And the programming world and the tech world, these valorize forms of work that may not fit into the traditional pattern. So in a way, I think the leadership will have to respond to the conditions, but I think the conditions are already changing and that reality on the ground is going to push policy in that direction. It, it will raise questions about what is the time at which our work should happen? What is the minimal survivable uh, living wage? And why is it that a country with the resources of America cannot provide at least that that could that could lead to the renewal of culture for people who otherwise might have no capacity whatsoever to do that because they have to actually work three jobs in order to get that first get that first rung on the ladder and they may never get there they may not be healthy enough they may not have access to healthcare all those kinds of issues exactly exactly and and I want to take stay with that question but but change its shape a little bit and take it to you Larissa if uh, if you want to unmute yourself and come in and, and maybe join us on this because obviously we're talking a little bit about work as a definer of a particular kind of American self-definition of American values. But it was very interesting to me that in your talk, you focused on the world of welfare, which is a very different set of values and a different kind of self-definition. But certainly on this side of the Atlantic, Atlantic we're, we're very much aware of how uh, the debate around uh, Obamacare over uh, universal health insurance has really defined the landscape of debate for this generation. But welfare is not, doesn't have the kind of persuasive attraction that the idea of an honest day's work does. Is that part of the problem in, in trying to refashion some kind of dream narrative for the, the contemporary generation? So um, part, of the, part of the opposition um, that I was seeking to set up was between this notion of just flat access to the American dream, right? And so um, part of the, the impetus behind um, FDR's second Bill of Rights is the notion that without basic security, what we might call primary goods, um, which is kind of back to this UBI, universal basic income conversation, without basic security, are you actually free to pursue liberty? without life, without a modicum um, of well-being, which is welfare at its essence, right? Welfare is about well-being. Um, and in the United States, welfare, different than um, in uh, the UK, as you all know, um, as I already mentioned earlier, our notion of class is quite different. Our notion of welfare 
is different as well. Um, and, and so healthcare gets caught up in this, um, it's less of a debate. It, it's more of a, a kind of um, dominant narrative, right? That welfare means one has failed. Welfare generally in the United States means in people's minds, um, a cash handout, like on the dole, being on the dole, right? And so part of that is notions about who is on welfare. And there's a great book called Why Americans Hate Welfare. It's full of statistics um, about Americans' views of poverty, um, aid. The majority of Americans believe that government should do more to help the poor. And in the same survey, um, this, the same people say government should contribute less money to quote unquote welfare, um, temporary assistance to needy families, the cash handout as they perceive it to be. Well, how do we reconcile this contradiction? It's about race. Um, the majority of, of these same people, 60% um, of Americans believe that over 50% of people on welfare are black. 56% um, of people on welfare are white. It's about the notion of who deserves help. Coming back to this notion of welfare being, I saw a question about equal opportunity versus equal outcomes. The American dream has nothing to do with equal outcomes um, per the mythos. It is this notion that everyone has the opportunity to start in the same place. Well, the education system says no one is starting in the same place. Um, prop, education in the US is predicated on property taxes. It's, does a child have the good fortune to be born in a neighborhood that has a high tax base. And if not, their educa education as the route to achieving the American dream is foiled, right? And so the centrality of race to determining um, in some, to some degree how one fares relative to this notion of the American dream is kind of prepackaged in a kind of mythos and ethos um, around how welfare works, how economies work, um, who deserves to get ahead, um, who doesn't, um, that white men deserve to be in the front of the line, like the notion that white men are strangers in their own land to begin with, right, obfuscates genocide, but it also obfuscates the notion that Black Americans like Barack Obama, right, um, received uh, a law degree from Harvard, um, went to Occidental College, then transferred to Columbia, and he was considered by them a failed president. This is what results in the election of, um, the subsequent election of Donald Trump, the rise of white supremacy. Um, and so the American dream then, in some sense, uh, has led to, um, it's part and parcel of this strain of nihilism, Afro-pessimism. Afro you know, we also have this notion of Afrofuturism, but the American dream as, um, as a mythos is not only non-functional for some people, um, it is predicated, again, um, and replicative of these notions of um, American exceptionalism. It's predicated on white supremacy. Um, and so in order to, to really have a, a deep conversation about this, I, I don't see how we can't discuss labor as associated with black and brown bodies. And the fact that um, part of the, the race to the bottom is this effort to squelch 
uh, policy um, efforts and money towards these particular groups of people. Um, yeah. yeah, exactly. And I, I want to get time to come back to this question of, of the use of the body in this sense, uh, mm -hmm. particularly in relation to what Bernice talked about. But, but let me pick up on something, Larissa, that you mentioned, which is this idea of everyone starting in the same place. And of course, in a way, this is obviously part of the, the narrative we're talking about. But uh, one of the things that, that Ed raised uh, in the way that he opened his talk with his own family's experience is, of course, we have as part of this American dream, the fact that so many people are buying into it from other places. And mm -hmm. uh, Ed, your family's uh, ancestry back in what is now Croatia gives mm -hmm. this geographical shape uh, and addition to the narrative. But what I wanted to ask you, perhaps Ed, first of all, and this ties in with a couple of the questions that come, have come in, looking at the kind of narrative of the American dream, is about the relationship of an individual story, a family story, to the greater public narrative. Is one ultimately more persuasive than another? Is the fact that you can look back uh, through your own ancestry to your grandfather and tell that story of passage, of arrival, of finally uh, mobility in your own ascent to the glorified position of a university lecturer. Uh, is this ultimately going to outweigh any kind of public narrative that people's individual stories, and this is perhaps something um, that uh, an Irish uh, um, sensibility might share, people's individual and family stories are ultimately what guides their values and what establishes some kind of dream narrative. Ed, I might take that to you and then I'm going to come back to uh, other questions that are flooding in now from our listeners. Ed, I think you need to, um, thank you. No, maybe. Can you hear me now? Yes. Yeah. It's interesting to, to listen to what people hear when, when one talks, you know, um, because the, First of all, let me say about what uh, um, Nick and Larissa were saying in, in very kind of macro and technical terms. The thing that really exercises my imagination and, and in a way my soul on a day-to-day -day basis is the seemingly inexorable link in our lives, American lives, between economic action and like corrosive relationships between people. Why it is to why it is that I seem to experience and also witness around me in great intensity, a very, very disturbing correlation between one's economic, one's action in economic terms and professional terms in their work. And um, the outcome being a kind of corrosive or, or yeah, a corrosive relationship to the people around us. Um, and if you, if you listen, if you look closely at the things I was, quoting Ondaatje and Baldwin to be saying, is that one of the things both of them noticed was that among these workers, at least these imagined workers, there was some sort of affinity they had for each other, those workers on the bridge, that family in the pizzeria. Baldwin was saying, you know, what, what marked them as foreign is they had this rapport with each other. Um, and there was a certain coherence that went into life uh, where, you know, economic action isn't, isn't only breaking down relationships. It can be, it can be a part of uh, building um, strong relationships. And I when, I, when I, when I think about that, and I think about my own life coming up, 
and, and the, the terrible tendency to call what I've been through success. You know, I, I just, I can't, I can't bring myself around to see it that way. I used to be an industrial laborer. And I really did feel like some of the people around me, and it was a multiracial group of mostly men around me, would after two, three weeks of work, have some regard for the work I was doing. Like, you know what, the guy's working. And it seemed like there was some evidence that we could all kind of share in that apprehension of each other. Even though there's always suspicion someone's not working as hard as somebody else. And I really, I have to say, you know, honestly speaking, in my life as a professor, I brought my working class experience to it. I go to work every day. And I think there was some fantasy in my mind that in the end, that would produce some good feeling and respect in, in the eyes of my colleagues. And I hate to report the, you know, another Jordan Peele plot, but <laughs> I haven't found that to be exactly the case. And so, you know, I, I think about when I was a kid, just trying to figure out where is a place where people can relate to each other with some sense of style and some sense of cooperative mission. And I found it on basketball courts. You know, and if it hadn't been for those locations, I wouldn't have survived because there was utterly so little else to go on, especially in the upward mobile leading path that I, I, I seem to be compelled to be on because my father was kept telling me all these steel mills are out of here, man, this is not gonna last. So, so I don't know, um, that's what I wanted to say. Uh, th th that's not a natural occurrence. These corrosive relationships that occur in economic action are, are, are designed. These systems of, of opportunity are pyramidal. There are fewer people above you than below you, which means everybody next to you, you know, um, is in competition with you. And the cost of those structures is, is, um, is really uncountable, I think. And in no way, um, repairable in in terms of you know money and so forth not fully yeah. not from so thanks ed yeah that's how i can respond to that i hope it makes some sense it has and again you've you've i think helped us redefine the vocabulary around class in the united states and larissa i know in in your talk you've already mentioned the need for us to be quite precise that you know we're dealing with different concepts of class from from what we might uh rely on in, uh, in Ireland or in the UK or the rest of Europe, in fact. But, uh, but as Ed, you've, you've mentioned the Jordan Peele films again, and it's an opportunity now to, to move this uh, discussion onto a topic that so many questions are going to come in on and have come in on, which is the question of race. But I'll go to Bernice to kick off on this because uh, I thought your uh, analysis of Jordan Peele's work was fantastic, Bernice. But I want to ask you a, a broader question, if I may. Um, about the work you do in American Gothic, uh, is it possible that the success of uh, an American tradition of cinema, of literature, so many people have talked about the novels, Nick's talked about the theater that, that deals with the dark side of American life, is one of the problems that all of these anxieties are channeled into the cultural world and indeed into entertainment, instead of being addressed in the policy sphere, instead of being addressed at a government level. Is that part of the problem? Well, 
Well, I, I don't see it as part of the problem. I see it as actually uh, potentially part of the solution. I think there's something incredibly healthy about, um, you know, I think popular culture often works at its best when it's confronting things that aren't necessarily spoken about openly uh, within the, the dominant culture. I'm thinking of a good example would be um, in, you know, the US in the 1950s, where, of course, you had a wonderful raft of B-movies and, and science fiction novels and horror novels about the apocalypse and annihilation and death. And they were actually, as you know, the great literary critic Sakvan Barkovich pointed out, it was in popular culture that these conversations were happening in a way that wasn't necessarily always happening on the surface of the more highbrow literary culture. And I think to a certain extent, you certainly couldn't say that uh, compelling and urgent conversations about race and, and, and inequality are not happening within um, perhaps more mainstream, uh, serious culture. Um, but I do think that what's happening in, um, I think particularly the rise in recent years of um, uh, African-American uh, and female filmmakers um, in particular uh, within, within the horror and gothic traditions has been incredibly exciting. And it's meant that, you know, for instance, um, one of the great horror films of the, uh, of the uh, 1990s is a film called Candyman, in which there's a, a sort of a African-American sort of anti-hero slash villain who is terrorizing a white woman. And it's a really interesting film and quite good in some ways, but obviously it's racial context, I think, haven't necessarily aged very well. That's a film that, for instance, has just been remade by, you know, an African-American woman with the help but, uh, but uh, some of the backing of Jordan Peele. So I think what you're getting is a sense that um, when, particularly when um, when sectors of society that have previously, previously been kind of um, locked out of um, this kind of discourse get access finally uh, to to make their own films and to, to make films for everybody, but to, to tell stories of, that they want to tell themselves. I think that's incredibly powerful and has potential to actually be quite radical. So. Mm. A very pro horror. Exactly, and of course you are. You've, you've got a job out of it, Bernice. Well, exactly. I, I can't bite the hand that feeds me. <laughs> no, indeed. But let me stay with you. And just we've, we've lots of questions coming in. As I said on race, uh, one from Maureen Penrose. Thank you, Maureen. But but very very blunt indeed. Which is really simply, how can we make black lives matter? Black lives, poor lives, homeless lives matter. And in terms of, of what we've been watching recently about the Black Lives Matter movement, Bernice, but also in relation to the way in which you described Jordan Peele's work, and even going back to uh, earlier, um, earlier materials such as The Step With Wives, one of the things that you work on really is the subject of bodies which have been invisible being represented in some way. These are discourses about women's bodies in The Step With Wives, uh, even if they're becoming uncanny. Um, African-American bodies being used by uh, the white baby boomers in Get Out. Why do you think so much of um, this, this gothic material is focused on uh, the body as a site of both horror and, I suppose, appropriation? Well, I mean, I think lack of control over your own body is one of the most terrifying things anyone can face. And Obviously, as women in Ireland, we know that recently this has been a, a topic of much uh, heated debate and, and great change, uh, I think very positive change. Um, so I think that it's interesting, a film like The Stepford Wives has, um, you know, represents suburban women that are essentially have lost control of their own bodies and are ultimately kind of exterminated so they can represent a very idealized uh, uh, certain type of, of female representation that is, of course, entirely 
um, orientated towards a certain kind of middle class male, white male. Um, and I think what the interesting thing about a film like Get Out is that you know, you can see this film on one level, you, you, could, you could enjoy it, uh, not necessarily have see it as a thrilling film without necessarily knowing anything about American history. It doesn't, it doesn't you know, hit you over the head with the, with the parallels, but it becomes, I think it's a film that is, is tremendous at updating um, anxieties about, particularly about the often, the, you know, very frequently dehumanizing treatment of African American, the African American male body in particular, and the fetishization of 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 um, particularly uh, African American athletes is something that kind of is feeds into the film as well. So, um, sort of a roundabout way of thinking that I think horror in particular is ideally placed because it is it is a genre that you know it is about articulating anxieties and bringing to the surface that which is perhaps you know, hitherto been, I can't believe I said hitherto, which has been <laughs> repressed. Um, and so I think in that way, it's actually um, the perfect vehicle for those kinds of politically minded um, um, excursions into, into mainstream cinema and, you know, indie cinema as well. Exactly. And you've touched on the fact that the white male presence in these films is a, is a constant motif and it, it relates to a question that's come in from uh, someone who wishes to remain anonymous but a terrific question uh, which really opens up by saying the USA is a macho society uh, it faces a choice between two versions of the same old man as president even if Kamala Harris were to enter the White House she wouldn't be allowed to govern Obama's presidency shows that neither women nor minorities are able to achieve real power. So if we, we take that this anonymous question as a springboard, I'll, I'll let you maybe address this a little bit, Bernice, and then throw it open. How much is the American dream uh, interlinked and inextricable from the ascendancy of a, a white patriarchy uh, and masculinity? Uh, how much is the problem of the American dream, the fact that it's it, it's irretrievably gendered in this way. Mm. Well, I think that the version of the American dream I, I talked about in my presentation, absolutely not very traditional version, is is founded on on you know the supremacy of the, the white the middle class white bloke in particular or the upper class white man. Um, so I, I do think it is. It's one of the it's one of the foundational kind of touchstones. I mean, I think there's a certain. It's become clear that there is a, you know what maybe twenty five percent of the American population who. Um, at the moment, I think that's the rough statistic that's given who actively seem to really respond to the authoritarian, ultra performative, um, really presentation of a certain type of masculinity that President Trump um, embodies that to people who don't get it seems ridiculous and clownish. But he's tapping into something, this kind of um, uh, performatively tough father figure. Um, and of course, his family is really important in that as well, isn't it? That it's not just him. You get the whole package, uh, which is what just wonderful. So I do think that, yeah, I think he's been fortunate enough to tap into that. Whereas you've got the whole Joe Biden is kind of, you know, if you're leaning Democratic, he's kind of like the good dad that's going to sort everything out and it's going to be OK. Um, whereas I think it's a much tougher, um, it, it's much tougher for, uh, female candidates to, to walk that tightrope and I think you know it's interesting Kamala Harris you know uh, we represent herself very much as sort of the mamala figure and you know she has to mention that she has she has um, you know she has her own family and, and one would wonder for instance uh, you know if a woman without her own kids perhaps was to run as you know that, that, that I think would be seen as damaging in a way that 
it simply wouldn't necessarily happen with a male candidate. So, yeah, I think that's a very long-winded way of saying that. Uh, yes, I think I think it is really important. Um, yeah. yeah. No, thank you, Bernice. And of course, in the controversial appointment to the Supreme Court, we're seeing these these gender narratives and the family narratives play out again. I might throw that back at you, Nick, if I could, because in your exhortation to uh, America to wake up, to live a different kind of life, um, I suppose some people might suggest what you're asking for is a letting go of a particular masculine kind of authority, inheritance, set of values. We've seen the same kind of shifts in narrative in Irish history. Um, you know, if you read John McGahan's wonderful novel, Amongst Women, how do we move from the authority of a, a, an old style patriarchy to the ascendancy of a more female set of values? Now, these are very simplistic terms, but in, in no doubt a more complicated way, I wonder if you could uh, reflect on that a bit. Yes, well, something in some of the comments that I've uh, that I've read there, um, I, I question a little bit the plague on both their houses uh, assumptions of the current moment. I question whether um, these two candidates are in fact two versions of the same white man. Um, and, and I think that that character in fact does matter. You know, people might be of the same generation or the same type, but my training would be to kind of treat people as individuals, not to first review um, their identity characteristics and then make assumptions that I've defined as racism. I would say I would, I would view uh, their actions, I would view their habits, I would view their character, their behavior, their rhetoric, um, and their activities. And so I see a distinction in, in the available options when we evaluate it on this personal grounds. But I agree that um, it's, it's really clear from recent history that misogyny is deeply entrenched in the political realm in America, that this image of what does a leader look like um, is, is, is embedded, you know, that's an embedded aspect of the culture. But I was really moved by something that, that Ed was saying about, you know, basketball courts, when, when, what is the imagined community? What does that look like? And for me, you know, no surprise, I found that in theater. And the, the mode of behavior in community action, when people have to, under huge pressure, um, get together, not completely equalize everything. It's not that everything is, everybody has exactly the same or the exact same outcome. There are different abilities in the room. There are different advantages, these things. But there is a collective chaining together of those unique individual specificities toward a goal. And that goal has an urgency and it has a uh, a, a set of constraints, a set of boundaries, a set of rules, but we have to go forward with it. Yeah. And I'm suggesting that America is in such a moment now that we are constrained by forces that we absolutely cannot control. In, in the Gothic story, you know, the alien invasion is here. Like the 1950s alien invasion, it is here. It's the ocean, it's the fire, right? It is elemental forces are here. So the, the country can either assemble that chain on those common grounds and say, we have to orient ourselves around how to endure it, it, this land physically in the land um, or, or else. So it's like the, the problems that we're carping about are so small compared to the scale of that problem and the urgency of that problem. That's why I keep going back to it. And I think there is an element of um, maybe from French theory, from mid 20th century French theory, there is an écriture féminine um, of community which is distinct. And we see that in particularly, uh, you know, masculinist doctrines like in film, uh, in, in Hollywood culture. Um, you know, people like Catherine Bigelow talk about how 
they run a set differently than the sets that they first trained on, and that generates a different result. So I'm, I'm imagining a politics in which gradually, because of demographic shift, generational shift, and just the circumstances, um, we have to adapt to those new circumstances or perish. And I, and I don't see um, much of a split between those. I think a lot of the things we debate on the sidelines of that are not addressing the real issue. Yeah, thank you, Nick. And, and we, we've hardly scratched the surface of this and we're running out of time, but I just want to get to one question, um, which I'm going to throw to you, Ed. It's a question that's come in on Facebook from David Horgan, and you're going to have to be economic on your answer, Ed, but I'm asking you because it's a question about creativity. Um, mm -hmm. Though imperfect, David asks, has the American dream not facilitated creativity? As someone who works in music as someone you know who who works in literature do you feel that this is a essential component of the american dream that perhaps we haven't paid enough attention to wow yeah um you know that that that's something that i don't think we can give a, a one dimensional answer to i i certainly think that the imagination the the real substance of the imagination as the thing which is constituent the force with which we constitute reality for ourselves and each other, that thing that I know as the imagination is almost outlawed in the world um, I've read about historically and experienced around myself. Um, creativity, of course, is, is almost um, a, a life and death necessity, if, but only channeled toward you know, making money for the people who are above you, pretty much. But the, the, the true act of the imagination as a, as a constituent element of a viable and coherent reality is something that, that, that American culture is deeply, deeply afraid of and, and, and terrifyingly estranged from. Beautifully put, that is something that would make a topic for a whole other yeah. discussion, I think, Ed. So, so thank you and, uh, and thanks to everybody who sent in really stimulating questions here. I'm just so sorry uh, we haven't had time to take more of them. Uh, but look, this is not the end. Let's keep this conversation going. Um, all of you, uh, join the Hub again. We will be uh, running numerous more online events to address subjects like the American Dream and many more. We have, uh, I'm going to mention a couple of things because uh, I think a lot of people listening might be interested. We've got a wonderful new series starting next week on the 4th of November called Sonic Spaces. It's the first online discussion of its kind, looking at the soundscapes of the performing arts. And I've seen the lineup for Sonic Spaces. It's just a brilliant series of uh, talks coming up. You can register on the website. Um, and also our series Out of the Ashes, which many of you will have joined us for, is returning on the 23rd of November with a lecture called, uh, very topically, Whose History? The Migrated Archive and Britain's Colonial Past. And again, details on the website. So keep an eye on the What's On section of the Trinity Long Room Hub website, and you'll see uh, some information going up in the chat as well if you're in the Zoom room. Uh, these events are free to attend. All you need to do is register and turn up at your screen um, on the night. Well, look, unfortunately, we have to draw to a close, but let me thank our absolutely wonderful speakers this evening uh, for their imagination and their very well-judged contributions to this panel on the topic of the American dream. Uh, Laricia, uh, Ed, Nick, Bernice, thank you again. It's a fascinating discussion and I know 
that I will be reflecting on it as I watch the results come in after the polls close on uh, on Tuesday. That's going to be a long, dark night, I think. Thank you also to the Trinity Longroom Hub team, especially Francesca O'Rafferty, who has run the setup for this evening's panel brilliantly as always. And thanks also to George Gershwin, who provided our opening music for those of you who were here early. But most of all, thank you to all of you, to our audience. It's been great to have you with us. Uh, I hope that you will come back to the Trinity Long Room Hub online very soon. The Hub soon. is a community. Manuscripts, book well and print cultures, stamping provenance towards the history of the Taimoria Library. As well as being heard. The Hub is a space. Contemplating Ireland through the communities created by Coral The Hub is about impact. The Hub is for everyone. The rise of